Welcome to the New York Mandate podcast, where we take a look at the costs and consequences of New York's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. I'm Amy, and in this series, I'll be talking with people who have been directly affected by mandates about their perspectives and experiences. So today I am here with Karen, who is a nurse and um, had extensive experience working during the pandemic. Um, and also with the with the New York State mandate, which uh, she fell under. And I want to ask you to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about what your background is in nursing, um, how you got into it, and what, what kind of nursing have you worked in? So my name is Karen. Uh, I've been a nurse for four years uh, before I got fired due to the mandates. Before being a nurse, I was an emergency medical technician for 17 years. I'm still an emergency medical technician. I still have my card and I'm certified. And I loved that job. I, I, I did it for a while and I love patient care. I love the adrenaline of the job. I loved uh, coming to unknown situations and being very creative with how you deal with those situations. But I always wanted more. I wanted more of the patient interaction. I wanted more of interacting with the families. Uh, so I decided after serving in the army, I uh, decided to go back for schooling and I went to nursing school. I started my career off at a cardiac ICU step down unit in New York. And after two years of working in that, I uh, applied to a different hospital and I worked in the emergency room um, at that hospital. That was in 2020. Uh, and that's uh, pretty much when uh, the pandemic started. So uh, I, I got to work most of the pandemic in the ER. Right. So you were uh, you were in the army. Is that where you became yeah. an EMT? Is it, did you get your training there or was that? Uh, no. So I uh, so I became an EMT. So I actually you're only allowed to uh, take the state exam when you're 18 years old. I actually uh, became uh, assistant on the ambulance when I was 16. So for 16 years old, I started volunteering at the local fire department we have here. And I went on the ambulance for about two years and I actually took the state exam on my 18th birthday. So I, I was the youngest EMT in New York uh, because I took it on, on my birthday. So I only went into the army when I was 22. So uh, I was an EMT before I even went into the army. Wow. And how long were you serving? I served for two years in active duty. Okay. So, um, so what was that? What were you doing just immediately before the pandemic um, hit? But what kind of um, environment were you working in? Uh, I was uh, during that time. I was uh, still in the cardiac uh, step down unit in the ICU. Okay, and so then what happened in early 2020? So pretty much, uh, I mean, we started, I think we started hearing of something weird going on around the world in February 2020, if I'm not mistaken. And the first case that I know that I recall, it's honestly, all the dates are kind of blurred together at this point. But the first case uh, hit our hospital in, um, I think, March of 2020. Our, our unit was the first um, COVID case in Long Island uh, to be treated. So what happened was they came to the staff one day uh, with no warning whatsoever. And they said, here's gowns. There's something going on around the hospital. We're not quite sure what it is. Uh, so just gown up and be ready for anything that happens. And that's pretty much how it started. There was no text message, no, no real warning. And it was just kind of dealing with the unknown at that time. Right. Okay. 
And so how did, um, how did things develop from there? Uh, I mean, in the beginning, things were very, very crazy, as as probably so many people know. I mean, initially, there were so many mixed reports and with everything going on in the news, it was very, very scary. You didn't really know what you're dealing with. And I mean, you're expected to do your job as well as you can with all the information provided um, in some units in the hospital, especially the step down. So for anyone who doesn't know, um, who doesn't work in healthcare, the step down units are pretty much units that are in between critical, which is the ICU patients and medical surgical units where, where it's more of the basic type of cases that come into the hospital. So the step-down units are pretty much a downgrade from the intensive care unit. And usually either patients who go in the step-down unit are upgraded into the ICU or they're downgraded from the ICU and they come to our unit. Uh, so all the situations with ventilators, which is probably what people heard of in the beginning that a lot of patients went on ventilators, uh, those are in the ICU. But what happened was the ICU was so overwhelmed with the amount of patients that they started bringing patients that were very, very critical to the step-down units and training nurses on the step-down units on ventilators. It was like a five-minute training of like, this is how you use a ventilator and this is what you need to do. We don't have enough respiratory therapists because they're going from case to case in the hospital. So this is what you need to do. And I remember calling, I had a, a nurse manager in an upstate New York hospital that I used to um, have an externship with when I was a student nurse there. And I called and I remember asking her, hey, like, I mean, if something goes wrong when patients are on a ventilator and that's my patient, am I going to be held liable because I don't know how to use a ventilator and a five minute training does not really cover what you really need to know. And um, her response was, it's a pandemic, so no, so you're covered, you're not going to be held liable. But I remember that that was the first time where I just started having this very uncomfortable feeling of that like ideology between, hey, this is my my nursing license and I took an oath to do no harm and I need to treat these patients as efficiently as possible and try to save as many lives as I can. But on the other hand, am I doing more damage than I am good because we're really not trained to use these these types of equipment? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. During that time, there was there was a huge focus in the media on ventilators, and that was really kind of um, you know we saw Cuomo on television every day talking about how we needed to get more and more ventilators for people, um, and that that really sounded like you know for for those of us who are not in the medical field um just listening to that it kind of sounded like that was the magic bullet you know that was really the key to saving people's lives and um <clears throat> you know just handling the situation um were, were you seeing all of that um discussion in the media and the way it was being presented yeah, so I pretty much since September 11, 2001, I stopped watching the news. It was kind of hard to stay away from the news during uh, COVID when it first hit, because I mean, it was just everywhere. And if you weren't actually physically watching it, people were just talking about it consistently. Um, but I, I know there were I used to watch his uh, state of the not state of the union, the state address, New York state address that he had on a daily basis. And there was a huge, I mean, in the beginning, I don't really recall, I recall more towards the middle of um, the pandemic that there was a huge disconnect between what he was presenting and saying and what we were actually seeing in the hospitals. Um, but now in hindsight, looking back at 
everything that has come out and all the knowledge that I um, developed during this time, uh, I think that ventilators were a huge mistake. Um, I definitely know, knew from the beginning that they're not saving lives. I think at, at one point, and this is not to badmouth any of the uh, physicians that I worked with, because in the emergency room, I worked with the great physicians. But the way it works in the emergency room, at least, is when patients first come in, they are the ER doctor's responsibility. The ER doctor either decides after the assessment if they're, they think that they need to be admitted to the hospital or that they could be released home. If they're released home, great. If they're admitted to the hospital, they have to talk to the admitting doctors, which are usually the floor doctors. The admitting doctor comes downstairs, does their own assessment, sees if they agree with the ER doctor. And at that point, the patient becomes an admitting doctor's patient. They may stay in the ER for a few hours after they were admitted, but any order that I want after the fact that they were admitted has to come from the admitting doctor. The ER doctor does not touch them anymore. And that's where the huge disconnect happened um, between what the doctors were thinking were the best treatment. But I know initially everything was very confusing. People didn't get the right information. We didn't even know initially what the best treatment was. But there was early on, uh, there were treatments like ivermectin, hydrochloroquine, uh, these types of things that I know a lot of people, it was a huge discussion in the media. And apparently those um, medications were helping people in Florida. Uh, people in Florida did not have the severe cases um, at all. And a lot of people were discharged and fine. I don't think there was a huge death rate at all. And these treatments were working. But instead, here in New York, Cuomo was just pushing the ventilators. We later found out that every patient going on a ventilator, the, the hospital actually got more money for. So now you start questioning if it was really driven by money or they really thought that that was the right decision. But like typically speaking, when a patient has trouble breathing, they're placed on a ventilator at a certain extent, like if their oxygen saturation is very low and there's other um, factors, uh, the decision may be to put them on a ventilator. But it's also known that uh, patients, depending on the demographics and stuff like that, it's very, very hard to get a patient off a ventilator once, once they're put on. And it's not like, I mean, a lot of people go on ventilators for surgery and general anesthesia, and that's fine. It's not like every time you're put on a ventilator, you're going to die. But when people were coming in with those types of symptoms and uh, putting them on a ventilator and making their lungs pretty much dependent on mechanical ventilation, that was a deadly combination. Is that something that you understood? You you didn't have much experience with ventilators before this, before yeah. you got the, the very brief training. So is that something that you understood before you started working um, with ventilators yourself? Did, did you understand that it was, um, it could contribute to a really critical situation? Um, to a certain extent. So I knew the basics of a ventilator even before the training, um, in a sense that it's mechanical ventilation. It's not good to keep someone on a ventilator for a long time. Um, usually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I think every hospital has a different type of policy, but I think the general consensus is that a patient is only on a ventilator for, and this is not discussing COVID specifically, it's just in general, a patient is on a ventilator for two weeks. After two weeks, they look at the option of putting a trach in instead of a ventilator, because the ventilator could do a lot of damage, not only to the lungs, but to the vocal cords and everything around it. So to hear about these cases where people were on vents for months, um, or people were just, they, they weren't looking at any other option. It was, okay, someone's having difficulty breathing, their oxygen saturation is very low. 
let's put them on a ventilator. That was a huge mistake. And that's something that I, I think I was contemplating, if I recall correctly. I wasn't an expert on ventilators. I'm still not an expert. So it's it was very hard to say, but knowing uh, the basics of mechanical ventilation, I definitely did question a lot of things. And I think the huge mistake was that hospitals, even my hospital, was pretty much when people were coming into the emergency room um, and they had shortest of breath, we would look at them, we would give them a pulse oximeter, to put, which measures their oxygen saturation. And we would be like, here you go, take this home with you. And if you're below 91% oxygen saturation and you're having difficulty breathing, come back to the hospital. And that was the huge mistake because there were so many different early treatments that could have been done to even prevent it from reaching such a low oxygen saturation and having to be placed on a vent. But we were pretty much sending people home and telling them to come back when they're in dire need and they pretty much don't have any oxygen. And that's when you had to put them on a vent. So you're saying that you were not seeing um, attempts at other kinds of treatments being made with no. COVID patients? Not not treatments that were known. Like there was a, uh, a typical hospital protocol of how to deal with certain situations that were coming in the hospital. And that's the protocol that was being followed. And I can't even say, yeah, initially, it's not a lie. The hospitals were overwhelmed. But after a few months, it was very, very quiet in the hospitals. And I think that's what people don't understand. And I don't expect them to understand that because it wasn't reported accurately. And that's where the entire agenda, in my in my opinion, comes in. But I remember specifically getting call for, calls from family members begging me to quit my job. They're like, your health is more important. Your family's health is more important. Please just leave because they knew that I was working with COVID patients consistently. And I remember like saying to them, I honestly do not know where you're getting your information from because the hospitals are empty. Like we even had emails sent out to us initially, we would get scrubs from the hospital and we would get like weekly reports of how many COVID patients are in the ICU, how many COVID patients are in the hospital network. They even stopped sending those weekly updates because there were just no COVID patients in the hospitals. And they sent us an email that they're no longer distributing scrubs to us. Um, I remember specifically telling my coworkers, hang on, I need to run upstairs and going upstairs to the COVID units to see for myself if it was really packed and they were empty. And I'm not talking, this is not in the beginning in February, March. This is, was a little later, but I remember that the news was still reporting the hospitals are so overwhelmed. Don't come to the hospital unless it's a dire emergency. And we were sitting there doing nothing. It was actually pleasant to finally work in the emergency room where you weren't overwhelmed with the amount of patients. Do you think that maybe it varied from a hospital to hospital? I mean, there were different situations and, and not at all. And that's that's the thing, because we were getting like my hospital system was one of the biggest hospital systems. So we were getting weekly updates about that. Um, I had friends in different facilities that we were constantly in communication with they were saying that they were sitting and, and kind of playing around because there were no, and this is in the emergency room specifically. And I know in the ICUs, like we got information from the ICUs too. So uh, of course there's so many hospital systems when I'm not in touch with every hospital system there is, but the general consensus was that at a certain point, the hospital systems were completely empty. Uh, there weren't a lot of COVID units were closing down consistently. I mean, it, it was it was even funny because they were actually furloughing people because there were so there there was just nothing to do. 
So I remember that that is when the, I, I was like, why are they reporting and scaring people so much and telling people not to come in? Like people who have dire emergencies, heart attacks, strokes, things like that, that we saw typically in the emergency room, suddenly those cases weren't coming in either. And I think that it was because the media was scaring so many people not to come in or you're guaranteed to get COVID if you're in the hospital. So they were preventing the, the typical emergencies you would see from coming in, plus the people who had symptoms of COVID from coming in. And we were just sitting and waiting and nothing was happening. Mm-hmm. So in, the, in that very busy early period, um, what kinds of, what were the symptoms you were seeing? You were seeing lots of people coming in who were quite ill. That's what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Um, it, was this all respiratory symptoms? What, what was going on with them? So in the beginning, if I recall correctly, it was typically the respiratory symptoms, the high fever. That was the like two things you would see. Uh, then it just uh, turned into more of like digest- digestion problems. Uh, a lot of diarrhea, just stomach aches, uh, things like that. So, and that was before they said Omicron came out, like that was way before. So it was, it was just presenting in very weird ways, but the, the, the beginning, the, the typical was the respiratory symptoms that we saw the most. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you're saying that, okay, so all of these people with serious respiratory symptoms were coming in and some of them were sent home to, to see if they would do better or worse. And then some of them were put on ventilators and given sort of very serious um, levels of care. Yeah. So typically like the, it was, it was really based on, so the pulse oximeter that goes on the finger is not the most accurate thing. Uh, Sometimes if your finger is cold, it will show a wrong number. Sometimes if you have nail polish on your finger, it'll show an an accurate number. So we we never like, especially in nursing, uh, we were always taught never to go only based on numbers. It's actually to go about presenting symptoms. And so if uh, like a lot of people, we would uh, typically see that they would come in and they would be freaking out that the pulse oximeter showed a low oxygen saturation but they're walking, they're talking, they're, you, you see that they're not in respiratory distress or any sort of problem. So you, that, that you'll send home. You'll be like, okay, if it gets worse and you're actually developing trouble breathing, come back. But uh, if it was someone who was like blue in the face, could barely talk, couldn't complete sentences, those were uh, people who would pr- typically stay in the hospital. Um, I, we saw a lot of cases of people coming in I mean, and this is like the the power of the media. And this is the problem with the media is that they scared people so much and people rightfully so they had anxiety because of everything that was being told and that was going on. And you would see a lot of people who who developed like 100.4 fever, which we don't really consider that even a fever. We consider that beginning temperature and they would come in freaking out. Oh my God. Oh my God. I think I have COVID and they wouldn't have any other symptoms and if you take Tylenol at home, your fever will go down when it's that low. So they were just anxious. They would come in. That was their only presenting symptom. And we're like, okay, take Tylenol and go home. And we would release them home. Um, So it was a lot of anxiety based uh, patients and symptoms that were coming in. There were some symptoms that were serious and you knew you could pretty much tell when they walked in, if it's a COVID patient or not. Um, you would you would get very good at uh, telling them before they even got a chest x-ray and things like that. 
So it, it was really, it really, really varied. But a lot of the patients that were coming in were patients with severe, that, that developed severe anxiety because of what was being told. And it was just a, a simple discharge home with simple discharge instructions, and we wouldn't see them back. Were they tested? Um, in the initially in the beginning, uh, patients weren't tested. Uh, later on, the emergency room or the hospital developed a rule that the emergency room would test every patient that came in. Um, every patient before they were admitted to the hospital, if they needed admission, they would be tested as well. And we would have to actually keep them in the emergency room until we got their test results. Uh, because there were COVID, initially there were COVID units upstairs and non-COVID units, and they didn't want to mix uh, in between. Later, it was very, very strange that they wanted to close down some units. So they started mixing COVID patients with non-COVID patients, which we didn't understand that. Um, they typically wouldn't put a COVID patient and non-COVID patient in the same room, but they would put them in the same unit. So we didn't really understand that. So initially they were very, very cautious about it. And later on they weren't, but every single patient that came in and every single person who died, regardless if they had COVID symptoms or not, were being tested. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so we, you're, you're kind of saying that there was, there was no middle ground treatment. There was either, it was either go home or be admitted and undergo some really serious uh, treatment options. Yeah. Um, where where was that approach coming from? Do you think? Do you, is this something that um, that came down from uh, from external uh, agency? You know, government agencies. Were there were there prescribed treatments that uh, medical staff and doctors had had to follow? Or did doctors have, the, you know, doctors usually have discretion, right, in how yeah. they, they evaluate patients themselves. They um, assess what the best treatment they, you know, they think is and try that. Um, did, did you see the, was it sort of typical operating or, you know, um, a typical approach to the patients that were coming in? Or did you see something different happening? Um, so initially, because I think that it's, it's really hard to say because as nurses, we don't really get the information for where it's coming from. We kind of either follow the doctor's order if they make sense or question doctor's orders. Mm -hmm. um, typically, I, I, I just from, from hearing the talk around the hospital, I think it came from a lot higher up. I think it came from the CDC. I think it came from the World Health Organization um, because they were leading the research in this pandemic and they were leading like what treatment worked, what doesn't, and recommending treatments based on that. So I think it, it was more the CDC than anything. Um, I know at least I could speak for the the ER doctors that initially they were definitely using discretion. Um, I think overall there was a general protocol in the hospital that came from the CDC and came for the, from administration. Um, so I don't think it was like the free hand that doctors could typically treat things um, because I, we saw the the same typical treatment for almost every patient so that tells me that there was no real discretion but that again that's an opinion i'm not 100 percent sure right. um i i definitely think at least from the er doctor's perspective they were trying to do everything they can uh with what they knew um at least in my emergency room uh we didn't typically i'm in in the er so if a patient is very, very severe and severe respiratory distress, 
So the, of course, the ER doctor is going to intubate them and then we'll stabilize them and send them up to the ICU. But I, I, at least for us, um, it was typically a nasal cannula. It's the tongues that go in the, the nose. Uh, then if it didn't get help, it was a lot of steroids. It was a non-rebreather, which is the mask. Uh, then high flow and then intubation if, if nothing stabilized the patient. So generally speaking, I think when the, the patients first came in and they were not critical enough, but in a critical state, they were trying different things. Um, but for the severe patient study, you would describe as severe that came in. It was definitely the same protocol for each patient. And that, mm-hmm. that I think came from higher up. I don't think there was any discretion. Okay. So then, okay. So then the situation kind of ebbed, you're saying, um, what was it like a, a, a few months, a couple, two, three months of really, um, heavy, uh, heavy influx of, of patients. Is that yeah. kind of the timeline? Probably, probably like three or four months, if I remember correctly. Okay. So then by early summer, um, things were tapering off a little bit. Um, and then you were working through that summer. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, eventually the vaccine came out. Yes. Um, so what was that transition like, um, from the period when you, when things kind of slowed down into the period of, okay, now we have a vaccine we're going to, um, roll that out and deal with this problem with the vaccine. So that's one things God. So for me, for me, things got very hairy before the vaccine even came out because we had patients coming in. Like I told you, we were testing every single patient and every single body that came in or, or that, that passed away in, in the hospital. Um, and with that, I remember the red flags started uh, occurring pretty early on when we had, there are two cases that I always speak about that I remember that that's when I started really questioning things. And that was way before the vaccine even came out. And one of them was a patient who passed away in a car accident. And it was very, very clear based on the symptoms that uh, the patient died from blunt force trauma. Uh, We had to test the patient or the body uh, for COVID, came out positive for COVID. So they wrote uh, death due to COVID on the death certificate. And I remember looking and I'm like, why are they writing death due to COVID? Like this patient died from a car accident. It doesn't make any sense. And a few days later, I had another patient uh, that was a terminal cancer patient, stage four. The family spoke about putting the patient on hospice care. Uh, and it was very clear that the patient was very close to passing away. Um, we released the patient home because they were going to go on hospice. And the next night, I worked and that patient came in a cardiac arrest. Uh, the patient ended up passing away. We tested them for COVID, came out positive for COVID. So they wrote death due to COVID on the death certificate where it was very clear that the patient had stage four cancer and that was the cause of death. So it was very, very strange to me when I started seeing those things happen. And also just knowing the about the PCR tests themselves and how inaccurate the PCR tests are. Uh, those tests that came out were never supposed to be used for diagnostic purposes only. The guy who even invented these tests said that it wasn't supposed to be the main factor to decide if someone has COVID or not. So putting that all together and then seeing how quiet the hospitals were later on, and then seeing a vaccine rollout, 
uh, was very, very confusing because it seemed like it was kind of, it wasn't, it's not the, like the pandemic was over, but it seemed like um, the severe symptoms were dying down. People weren't getting it as severe. If people had COVID, it was more like flu-like symptoms and they could just go home and rest just like anytime you're sick. So I, I the chatter, at least in the emergency room was, okay, this is very strange. Why do we need this? And I'm definitely not getting this because we're like, okay, it's definitely experimental. It just came out, it was rushed. The, the argument that it wasn't rushed that people use is completely inaccurate. It takes typically 10 to 15 years to come out with a vaccine. This was rushed. It didn't go through all the stages like it's supposed to, and it was rushed. So the typical chatter in the era was we're not getting this. And then they started rolling out the vaccination clinics in our hospital and healthcare workers were the first ones who were offered to get this. And that's where things started uh, turning out to be very hairy. I want to go back to what you were saying about the um, cause of death on death certificates. You, you're saying that those instances that you were describing are things that you saw yourself. You saw yes. the death certificate filled out in, in front of you. Um, <clears throat> is that the, the one with the um, accident with the with the um, trauma death? Yeah. Um, was that the first time that you saw that, that on a death certificate, that it was attributed to COVID? Yeah. And that was pretty early on. Okay. And then I saw, I saw multiple other cases of it. So the death certificate isn't filled out um, in front of us, but when we, we have, we have a certain time frame and a certain protocol when someone dies to call the medical examiner and to talk to the medical examiner and see if they're donors and, and things of that nature. And that's when it was uh, revealed to us that it's it's if they if they are positive and they were tested positive, then they died due to COVID. So this was a big discussion, even beginning at that time, and kind of going on through today about you know who died of COVID and who died with COVID. Yes, and it, I think we should say that it is, especially as as people become older and have more chronic diseases going on, when they do die, um, there are often multiple causes on a death certificate. Yeah, um, with someone young, it might be there might be more clarity. An older person, <clears throat> there are multiple causes of death. Yeah, but um, but you, I mean, you're suggesting that people were not being, you know, classified appropriately a hundred percent and and this was something that i mean this is something that we saw consistently and this is something that was later on even discussed by dr fauci himself when when especially when kids were getting covid and not a lot got it but there was the discussion about masking the kids and about vaccines for the kids and things of that nature dr fauci even admitted himself saying that uh we have to do a better job in differentiating between the number of patients in the hospital who had COVID and came in with COVID versus the number of people who got COVID. Or then he started saying because people were, I, I don't know if you remember the time, I don't remember what month it was exactly, where numbers came out at the, on the CDC website of the amount of people who died from COVID. And then it was like cut in half and people were accusing them of falsifying data. And that's when he said that, there were, first of all, they said there was a glitch in the system. And then they came out with a statement saying that they just have to do a better job. They don't want to say that someone died from COVID when they had COVID and they were with COVID, but died from other causes. 
So that came out months later after things that we were seeing in the hospital that were occurring on a consistent basis related to that. But because it was just, in my opinion, what happened was they knew that people caught on to them. People are realizing that what they're saying is not true. There was so much falsifying of data and information during that time of the amount of people who tested positive versus the amount of people who really don't have versus the false positive. It was just like an entire mixture of different things that people stopped believing them and discredited them. So that's when they were trying to be the savior of like, oh, no, we have to look at the data more accurately and report this accurately so that people get the right information. But it's not because of, of the kindness of their heart that they decided to do it. It was just people were onto them. There were so many people speaking out in the hospital system who saw what was going on. They were, they were, they were starting to put things on social media. They were being censored. But like people like myself and a lot of other activists who were in the hospital system before we got fired were speaking out. And it was very important for me, especially to see the, the amount of fear that people were in to the point that they didn't even want to see their family members. It was very important for me to, to make people realize like, yes, this is a virus. It could be deadly to some, but the, the survival, survival rate of this virus is very, very high. And you data showed during that time that you have to have at least four comorbidities to really get the virus hard to begin with. So the typical healthy person, whether you're an adult or a kid, will be just fine and may not even have any symptoms. So we were seeing a rise in mental health crises and we were seeing a rise in suicide rates more than we were seeing people who were actually dying from this virus. And this is, again, it goes back to the fear that was created over this entire situation. So it was very important for me to have people continue to interact with each other because we as human beings, we're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to isolate uh, with all their lockdowns and be at our house like in jail for two years. Like that's not natural. So it was important for me and other people to get the information out there that you're okay, go see your family, go be responsible, wash your hands like you always do, like, but be around people. It's not okay. It's not good to isolate. And, and people were not getting that message early on. In, in your personal experience, the people that you saw come in with who, who did have COVID and were really ill with it, were they mainly elderly people, people with a lot of comorbidities, people with health problems? Did you? Yeah, yeah, it was like more the um, the overweight, uh, hypertensive patient, a diabetic patient. So it was the typical very, very ill, ill people to begin with. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie and say there, there were some cases that like the patient was completely healthy. And it's not like they, they, I mean, a, a lot of cases you'll hear it. There were some cases where like a young person would pass away from COVID. Um, but this is talking like, generally speaking, typically it was the very unhealthy adult or elderly patient who had a, a whole list of medications that they would take to begin with. Those were the people who were doing, um, who were doing bad with COVID. The, the rest, I mean, kids, you didn't even see kids or hear about kids with COVID in my area. Um, so it was just, it was just very strange the way they were pushing things, um, especially when it came to the kids. Uh, that's something that I never understood. And it was just important to get the right information out there because the, the typical, I mean, you, you'll always have those stray cases of like random death and, and things like that. And I mean, that's why people were like, you don't know if it's going to be me. No, but if you look statistically speaking, 
most people would do just fine with COVID. I had COVID also. I, I didn't get vaccinated. I had COVID. I had a high fever for a day. Didn't even have to take anything for it. Rested in bed, isolated, and I was fine. And that's the typical things that you would hear from young people or even like more in the 40s or 50s that got COVID. They just had to stay at home, drink a lot of water, rest, and they were okay. So it's like they're saying that people like me are spreading misinformation. That's like what I get all the time. But it, like the information is out there. You just have to look for it and you just have to look at the science. The science speaks for itself. And the science is telling you that you have to have at least four comorbidities, like being diabetic, obese, hypertensive, a smoker, to be to, to probably get COVID bad. And that doesn't even mean that you'll get COVID bad. There were some people who had a lot of comorbidities and were just fine. There was an elderly woman who was 101 and survived COVID. So you'll, you'll see and hear of those cases all the time. But when you're constantly fed, fed these things on the media and you're constantly hearing of all the bad stories and not of all the, um, the people who survived this virus, of course, you're going to think that you're going to die from it. When did you have it? <laughs> I had it about six months ago. Okay. So you had the um, Omicron. The uh, Omicron, yeah. Uh, the, the different variants that they decide to, to invent every week. Do you think that they're, uh, I mean, you, you did, you, you yourself say that you saw the, the severity ebb. Yeah. And that, and that might suggest that there are different variants, right? That have so of severity. This is the thing. The PCR tests aren't testing variants. The PCR tests test the difference between COVID. Like you'll, you'll have the test, the test between COVID, RSV and the flu. So it always like we we always started laughing in the hospital where they're like, oh, there's the this variant and that variant. We're like, how exactly are they knowing that? Like they're going based on symptoms and they're like, okay, if it's not a respiratory symptom, then it's not Delta. It has to be something else. They they didn't even think about people are not even considering the fact that maybe like viruses evolved. So maybe it just became less strong because like our PCR tests that we were using don't test the difference between variants. So I don't know how they were getting like which variant it is. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so all that during all that early period, though, you didn't catch it yourself. No, really I, I never caught it in the hospital. I only caught it after I was fired. Okay. <laughs> it was very interesting. My immune system was very strong in the hospital. Apparently, yeah. Um, what what kind of hours were you working during that early burst of illness? So my uh, my uh, shifts were I was a night shift nurse, so it was seven p.m. to seven a.m. Probably pretty nonstop. Um, I mean the the hospitals uh, typically, especially the emergency room, they always beg you for hours. So I was working a lot of overtime to begin with, like not not having to do specifically with the pandemic. Right. I just wanted wanted to work overtime, uh, and I was picking up more shifts. Um, but, but th those are the typical hours for a night shift nurse. It's 7 PM to 7 AM. Um, sometimes in different hospitals, there's mid shift. So it's like seven, 7 AM to 11 PM. Um, but then you'll typically see like the, the day shift is 7 AM to 7 PM. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, I want to ask you again about the, what you were saying about the, uh, death certificates, because you're saying something pretty serious about physicians, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's physicians who fill out the, the death certificates, right? So the way that it works is uh, 
pretty much right after a person dies, we have to call the medical examiner and we have to call the organ donations to see, they, they ask you a bunch of questions about the patient, the age, the cause of death and things of that nature to determine if they're an organ donor. And then obviously they have to see if they actually filled out the organ donation form or they speak to the family and whatnot. But it's it's our requirement uh, with, our, with the protocols that we have in place to call the or, organ donation no matter what. So that's the first phone call we make. And then they're in touch with a medical examiner. We're in touch with a medical examiner. But when you call to report uh, patient death, they ask you, what is the cause of death that the physician determined? And that's right. where, where it, it is. Is it based on a car accident? Is it a heart attack, stroke, or is it death by COVID? And that's where you heard the death by COVID. But, but those... Uh, causes of death that you're looking at on the death certificate, that was always a physician, right? The physician who was in charge of that patient who filled that out. Yeah. So we didn't see that. Like I at least didn't see the actual process of filling out the death certificate, but the death certificate is filled out based on what the physician says the cause of death is or what the medical examiner determines later on is the cause of death. So the report that we get is they pretty much tell us why, like the physician will say why they died, like the determination of the actual death. And that's what you relate to the medical examiner and to the organ donation. So, so you are saying though, that, that you think that they were physicians, possibly medical examiners, um, who misclassified causes. A hundred percent, no doubt about it. There's, there's also so many cases that we could get into um, when we speak about the vaccination clinics itself, because I work there too. Um, so I, these are like uh, the specific case that I'm going to tell you right now is not a case that I personally saw, but a case that I'm in touch with a family now um, who had their loved one pass away from the vaccine. And it was a big case. It was a firefighter here in New York who passed away in his 30s. Um, I don't know, you're also based in New York, so you probably heard a lot about the sudden deaths in fire departments of firefighters um, that had medical emergencies and later passed away. Um, So one of them is very, very outspoken now about the cause of death of his brother. Um, I've been in touch with him and pretty much there's a lawsuit against the medical examiner there. Because when he went, when the brother and the other family members of some of the other firefighters went and accused the city of forcing this vaccine on workers, and that pretty much leading to a medical emergency because their loved ones were completely healthy beforehand, uh, the medical examiner in charge of the case said it's not uh, death due to the vaccine, came out with a statement, pretty much said it's not uh, death and the cause of death is not the vaccine, and the families agree with that statement. The families completely disagreed with that statement that was published. They never, ever said they actually said the complete opposite. The family members do believe the cause of death is from the vaccine. And apparently that statement by the medical examiner came out before an autopsy was even done. So they simply like quickly came out with a statement. This is not due to the vaccine. And that's what you're saying a lot. I mean, now I, I don't know if like you're up to date on what's going on now, but now they're saying even, you know, how there is sudden infant death syndrome. Now they're saying sudden adult death sy- syndrome, where you're finding these young, healthy adults who never woke up. So yeah, it, it could always be other things. There, there could always be people with underlying health conditions that they're not aware of. But let's connect the dots for a second and ask yourself, how many 14-year-olds or 15-year-olds don't, don't wake up 
the next morning. Like it, it doesn't make sense. And, and when I'm all for looking at both sides and getting the complete information and accurate information, but when you have a side that completely wants to negate that it has anything to do with a vaccine, and they're not even willing to open up an investigation to see if this is caused due to the vaccine, and they immediately, when there's a death, they come out with a statement that it's not, that's when you know that you're not getting the accurate information. So, yeah, that... I, I am familiar with that um, situation with the firefighter who passed away. He was, as you said, he was young. He was in his thirties. Um, and yes, the the medical examiner said the cause of death was not uh, related to the vaccine. The family is disputing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I I don't think that there's been any resolution to that. No, not yet that I know of. Yeah. Um, so. Well, let's let's jump ahead to the to the vaccine, the the period of vaccination in your yeah. uh, experience. Um, what was the role that you were put in um, in terms of working with vaccinations? So um, it wasn't a requirement. We weren't forced to work at the vaccine clinics. There were different pop ups around different uh, facilities. Uh, my hospital was one of those that offered um, the pop ups. So uh, they typically wanted emergency room nurses to work at the vaccine clinics. And they offered us a time and a half if we were willing to pick up shifts there. Um, I didn't believe in this vaccine from the beginning. And I, I have to say, like, just to put it out there that I was never against vaccines. Um, I'm vaccinated with a bunch of different things. Um, so I was never against vaccines to begin with. Now my opinion changed a little bit after everything that I know and saw. Um, but I never felt comfortable with this one. I never felt like there was enough data. Um, initially, it was not like initially when it first came out, I was like 100% no, there's no way I'm getting it. Um, I, I always said I want to see more data, more long-term data, and maybe in a few years I will get it. That was my position to begin with. Um, but when after seeing like a lot of things that we discussed that went on around the hospital system, and then seeing the push, I made it very clear that I'm not going to get it. And I didn't feel comfortable injecting someone with something that I didn't feel was safe. So when they asked me if I wanted to work at the vaccine clinics, I said that the only um, role I'm willing to play in this is be the observer. So there was a vaccinator and an observer. The vaccinator is the one who administered the shot. And the observer was the one who watched the patient for 15 to 30 minutes after the shot. Um, they said, no problem, but you still have to go through the training from Pfizer and Moderna. Those were the two we were offering. And I said, not a problem. Went through a very quick, quick slideshow of training on my own at home. That was the training and came to the vaccine clinic. And there was a military liaison that was there that was in charge of all the paperwork. And I remember seeing two sheets on uh, the table that they were handing out to patients who were coming to get vaccinated, both from Pfizer and Moderna. I picked up those sheets and looked at the frequently asked questions because I was interested in seeing what they were telling patients. And it was very interesting and funny to me that most of the answers to the questions were, we still don't have enough data about this. So that was the answers like on the information sheets that were provided from these facilities um, that were distributing the shots to begin with. So I was like, okay, if someone wants to get it when there's not enough information, that's their choice. But that just proved my point even more on why I'm not getting it. And then it seemed like they were very, very disorganized to begin with. Um, 
we had a nurse practitioner there, a pharmacist there, and like the one in charge of the clinic and a bunch of nurses that were flex staff that came from other hospitals to pick up the shifts as well. Um, when I worked there, most of the people or the nurses who were there were pediatric nurses. Uh, so they didn't even uh, really deal with adults. And we all have our own specialties. Um, I, for example, I mean, I know the basics of like when I have to take pediatric emergency classes, but do I feel comfortable dealing with pediatric patients? No, absolutely not. I deal with adults most of the time and they felt the same way about adults, but they were here at the vaccine clinics. And I remember that when people were getting the shots, um, some people were completely fine and others like I had to take the, to the emergency room and very early on. And there was one case specifically, and that's where I, after that case, I decided that I'm not picking up any more shifts there because I saw how unsafe it was. Uh, there was a nurse who got the shot. Uh, she didn't have any medical conditions. Uh, she was only set, set to sit there for 15 minutes because she didn't have any allergies or medical conditions. She was in her early 40s. And at minute 13, like the, what they did was after they got the shot, the, the vaccinator would give them a sticky note with the time that they got the shot and the time that um, they could leave. And they would have to hand me that sticky note and then they could leave if they were feeling okay. She was on minute 13, she was playing with her phone and then um, I saw one of the nurses approach her and her kind of freaking out. She wasn't in my area and she was kind of freaking out. And I was kind of like listening to what was going on. And I hear the nurse say, do you want a glass of water? So I'm like, you know what? Let me go over there and see what's going on. She was completely freaking out and sweating. I immediately took her to the gurney that we had there, put her on the stretcher, put the hard monitor on her. Her heart rate was in the 200s. Her blood pressure was very, very high. And she started having shortness of breath. I'm telling you, and that was like the thing that freaked me out the most and made me realize that I'm not working here because I could lose my license if I work here, is that all the nurses, especially the nurse practitioner that was in charge of the clinic and the administrators that were there, ran to the other side of the room. It was a big auditorium. They ran to the other side. So they saw... They literally with their own eyes saw that there was a medical emergency, someone sitting on a stretcher. So clearly they're not on the chairs of the observation anymore. And no one came and asked me if I needed help or what was going on. And this wasn't even the patient that I was observing. I connected her to the monitor and I, and thankfully my um, emergency room nurse manager walked in for some paperwork and she saw that someone was on the stretcher. So she came and she helped me take the patient to the emergency room. After we took her to the emergency room and, and we were talking like a bunch of us and the doctors were talking, they said, oh, it was just anxiety. That's when I had a huge problem because I'm like, no, you're not going to classify this as anxiety because this woman, I was watching like the area of the observation, although she wasn't sitting in my area, it was very close to each other. That's how I heard that something, something was going on to begin with. And you're not gonna tell me this is anxiety when someone is playing a game on her phone. So she's clearly not even thinking about the fact that she got the shot. She's sitting for 13 minutes and she's completely fine. And then you're telling me that suddenly at two minutes before she leaves, she has severe anxiety to the point that her heart rate is in the 200s, her blood pressure is very high and she's sweating. Like, so call it for what it is. This could be an adverse reaction from the vaccine. And that's where I said, I remember I sent an email to my emergency room director, my emergency room nurse, and I tagged the woman who was in charge of the clinic. And I said, I'm sorry to tell you, but 
you guys are not prepared for emergencies, like having an emergency room nurse work in the clinic is not enough. Clearly the training wasn't enough because, and this is not bashing nurses, but again, everyone has their own specialty, but clearly the nurses who were there that day didn't feel comfortable with handling an emergency and backed away. You're not gonna leave one person handling an emergency. So I'm not, I'm not picking up any more shifts there, sorry. And I never picked up shifts there again after that. And I think that was the entire idea, like just looking back at the training that we had from the two companies, it was like a PowerPoint that you did at home. So looking at that and then like having nurses come in with different backgrounds that some of them didn't, didn't have to deal with emergencies because they weren't ER nurses. I, I was like, they clearly are not expecting anyone to have adverse reactions. And that was like my main issue with the vaccine clinics. And I mean, this developed also later on when I wasn't working in the clinics and I went to picking up full-time shifts in the emergency room to seeing patients consistently come in with adverse reactions and the doctors would not classify it as a vaccine injury. And the main reason why the doctor said, because I was arguing with the doctors at that point, like, how do you know this is not from the vaccine? Like, I started specifically asking every single patient that had weird symptoms that were coming in if they got vaccinated. And the time frame that every single patient that I had with these weird symptoms that came in was two weeks after vaccination to three months. That's like the typical general thing that I started seeing when I was asking these patients if they got vaccinated. And when I asked the doctor, why are you saying that this could be from the vaccine? He said, because we don't have enough long-term data to determine that it's from the vaccine. So I can't characterize it as a vaccine injury if we don't have it. Now, every single doctor that sees, like we were told that if you, and this is like not a hospital thing, this is just a general thing that nurses and doctors know, that if there is any sort of vaccine injury, it has to be reported to VAERS. Even if it's suspicion, you have to report it to VAERS because you're not going to determine on your own if this is a vaccine injury. But they need to know about it so they could investigate it. And this was not being reported to VAERS because the doctors would not classify it as a vaccine injury because they didn't have long-term data, which was my point exactly. If we don't have long-term data, how are you forcing people to get this if they don't feel comfortable getting this? And I, I just remember like that was the thing that troubled me the most, more than COVID, more than dealing with COVID patients is seeing the amount of people coming in with these injuries and just, I mean, like really, really, really bad injuries. It was horrific to deal with. Like we had a 18 year old patient who was a football player who was oxygen dependent. Suddenly without oxygen, his oxygen saturation would drop completely. We had uh, patients, which is now known as COVID arm, where they got the shot, it almost looked like burns and their skin ripping off them. We had patients, especially female patients that the side that they got the shot on, they would have modeling of their breast area with a lot of weird spots. Um, we had patients that uh, couldn't, couldn't walk, that it almost felt like numbness and paralysis. Out of all these patients that I saw, and then you had the typical myocarditis, pericarditis that they're speaking of now that we saw months ago. But of, out of all the patients that I saw that had these types of effects, which are not typical effects you see in the hospital, there was only one doctor who said for a patient who came in with severe migraines that she couldn't open her eyes, she, she had severe back pain that she couldn't move and numbness to one side, they ruled her out for stroke. And the doctor said it may be from the vaccine. Out of all the things that I saw, the seizures of young kids and stuff like that, one case that I remember that the doctor said, oh, this could be a vaccine injury.
So, okay, so during this period, it was not, you're saying the things that you were seeing, these were not typical things that you would see in an emergency room. No. Like, before COVID ever happened, you did not see people walking in the door with these, with this set of symptoms. No. Okay. Yeah. What is the, you know, what is the, um, process from your person? And I know this is probably more uh, under the purview of a physician, but what is the process in a hospital of relating symptoms to medications or medical treatments to, of attributing things in that way you know like if i came in with a set of symptoms um would you and i had and i was taking some different medications you know i was on some different medications what would the process be for saying hey maybe it's because of that medication you're taking is that is that like a typical thing that people that medical professionals would look at you know they would say well what are your symptoms? What medications are you on? And then would they make a correlation or look at the correlation between those two things? So typically, like initially, if it's uh, some, some kind of emergency, like that, you know, if someone's coming in with difficulty, difficulty speaking um, or things of that nature, then it would be initially, we wouldn't even ask them. We would ask them like the important medications we think would be correlated to that. Like if you wanted to do I mean, there, there are medications that are blood thinners. And if let's say a patient is on a blood thinner and it, uh, they fell, you would be afraid of like a brain bleed, for example. So you would ask them, are you on any blood thinners if they fell? And especially if they're elderly. So there are those types of questions, but typically speaking, when a patient comes in with some kind of health emer emergency, like a real emergency, we don't ask them what the medications they're taking is. We'll go immediately to what we suspect it may be, and we'll try to rule it out, whether it's a, a stroke and take them immediately to the CAT scan to rule out a stroke, uh, whether it's put them on a monitor because we're thinking um, they, they may have a, they may be experiencing a heart attack right now and looking at their rhythm. So typically the first line of defense when a patient comes in with an emergency is to rule out. And that's where doctors and nurses alike, but mostly doctors will use their discretion to what are the presenting symptoms and what do we think this may be right now. After the, after you rule out the potential emergency, whether it's a stroke, a heart attack or whatever it may be, that's where you could go into more of the details, but especially with like strokes and heart attacks, time is money. Um, we, we say, we say all the time, like time of is, is the essence, like the more you wait, the more dead tissue pretty much. So you want to go and treat it like what, for what do you think it is? Um, if after that, like this, the presenting symptoms are not what we thought it was, or we, we managed to rule things out. Uh, that's where we'll ask the patient, their medical history, we'll ask the patient, uh, their medication list. And that's where there's more of a correlation, but Typically speaking, when you see patients come in, um, especially patients who are on a heavy list of medications, those are medications that the patient has been on for a long time, typically. Um, so you don't really think that it's something that has to do with medications specifically because uh, medications that patients are on for years don't typically cause random things like that. It's more if the physician recently, like their primary care physician recently um, switched a medication, especially with like psychiatric emergencies, that's something that you would be more inclined to ask, have you recently changed your medications? Um, but not for patients who have been on medications for years, you're gonna wanna know what medications they're on. And when you look at their medical history, you may uh, try to correlate the two, 
but in a health emergency, no, not, not typically. Mm -hmm. That's something you kind of look at after. Yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering because, you know, you, you're saying that the, you know, the vaccine was out for a very limited amount of time. It was studied for a very limited amount of time. Um, so the, the, um, people who are in the population who are taking the vaccine kind of are the study, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> um, that's, that's a huge data set. Um, but you're also saying that there was, you didn't see an effort to collect that data to, to look at the, the correlate, the possible correlation between their symptoms and, um, and the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, as a new medication that's coming out, you're, you're saying that yeah. the, the physician's approach was that kind of data has to come from a, a clinical trial and a, a, a formal study, right? Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, it's every physician's responsibility to, if they suspect it's a vaccine injury, to log it into the VAERS. And if uh, a physician, and again, this is more like a, something that I saw with the admitting doctors in the hospital, that if they're saying we don't have enough long-term data to classify this as a vaccine injury, then what exactly are you doing? Like you're pretty much, your, your discernment is what's ruining the data collection because this could have well been a vaccine injury that you just didn't log in now. But again, it's also the expectations that they had on doctors do you really expect an emergency room doctor or like we had, especially at night, we had one admitting doctor for the entire hospital. Okay. So do you expect uh, one doctor who's in charge of the entire hospital, aside from the emergency room to go and sit in front of a computer for about 30 minutes minimum to fill out a VAERS report? What doctor has time for that? So it's, first of all, it's, so it's not like putting blame on the doctor specifically, like the doctor's responsibility is to determine what this may be. And if it's a vaccine injury, if this could potentially be a vaccine injury, it's to report it. That is the doctor's responsibility. But they didn't make the system any easier for doctors to report it. Um, doctors are very, very science-based. So if they're like, so some doctors didn't want to potentially write it as a vaccine injury when there's not enough data to classify it as a vaccine injury. Um, and then there is the other the other side of it that I, I don't know if you heard about this, but this is like the most concerning thing to me out of everything is when you have a scientific study conducted, then you have the control group and you have the placebo group and the placebo group is the one that doesn't get the shots. So they don't it's supposed to be a blind study. They're not going to tell what group, what group, like group A, you're the one who's getting the shots, group B, you're the ones who's getting saline, you're not, you're not actually getting the shots. They don't say that it's a blind study. What they decided to do was unblind the study and pretty much tell the placebo group who didn't get the shot, hey guys, like it's our ethical responsibility because there's a pandemic to tell you, you didn't get the shot. So if you want to get the shot and protect yourself, go get it. So what happened? The placebo group that was supposed to be our long-term data to compare the people who got the shot to the people who didn't ended up to went and got the shot because they were afraid. So now we don't have any long-term data to compare each other. So when I tell people, and again, this is not to, to instill fear in people who got the shot, like my goal and so many other people who speak out, their goal is just to protect your health. Like we took an oath to do no harm 
So it's my responsibility when I see misinformation being displayed, when I see that there's no informed consent, meaning that the patients aren't getting all the information before they're making their decision. And what's happening is they're getting bribed by donuts and French fries to go get a shot. They're getting bribed by gift cards. There's propaganda on uh, not even in the media, there's constant commercials about go protect yourself and others and go get the shot where the shot was never meant to prevent you from getting COVID. So you see a lot of misinformation being spread. And it, the typical person who's not working in healthcare is not going to go and do these research. They don't know where to go look. They're trusting what providers are telling them. And if providers are going, how can you tell me how OBGYN went and told pregnant ladies to go get this shot when it first came out, when this shot wasn't even tested on pregnant ladies, like the FDA is not allowed to test pregnant women. If there's a pregnant woman who wants to go get the shot and be part of the study, she has the right to do that. But typically speaking, when you pick participants for the study, you're not allowed to pick pregnant ladies. So how did OBGYN doctors feel so confident to go tell pregnant ladies it's safe, go get the shot when there was no data about pregnant females. So this just shows like, and it's so, so upsetting because there are so many people who all they do is blindly trust their doctors. And that's never supposed to be the case. And this is not about COVID specifically, it's about anything. You're supposed to get all the information and make a decision that's right for you. You're not supposed to be coerced into going and getting this based on losing your job or not being able to enter a restaurant or not being able to travel. That's, that's not the right way to make a decision. And that's what people were doing. So many people, especially healthcare workers, did not believe in getting the shot. They didn't believe the shot was effective. They thought the shot was dangerous. And they ended up going and getting it because they were afraid to lose their job and they needed to provide for their family. So how is that okay to spread this misinformation and make people get the shot that way? The... Um just for, for my notes, the uh, the study that you were talking about that was unblinded, are you talking about one of the Pfizer um, clinical trials, which yeah. is, that, is that what you mean? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I want to, I want to ask you kind of about the, uh, about the general argument that's, that they're making um, about public health and especially about healthcare workers. Um, the, you said you've taken vaccines yourself. Did you have did you have requirements um, for other vaccines or any kind of um, medical requirements to take the job initially? Yeah, you like the tetanus shot, like you have to have it within 10 years. Then it's the, the typical shots that you need in order to enter school. It's the same thing. And then the, the one that was most controversial before the COVID vaccine was the flu vaccine. But it, for us, I know at some hospitals, um, made it a requirement. I know that in nursing school, it was a requirement for us in order to go to clinicals um, at hospitals. But then when my hospital system specifically, the flu shot was not a requirement. The only thing is if you refuse to get the flu shot, you had to wear a mask during the winter months or during the flu season, pretty much. Like that was the only requirement. So a lot of people were willing to do that. I, I also, like I got the flu shot when I was in nursing school um, because it was a requirement and I wanted to finish school. I did not get the flu shot after that um, because I never ever got the flu until I got the flu shot. Um, so that was my decision. I was okay with wearing a mask, but that just shows also uh, like about like an agenda in monetizing things is what happened was a lot of hospital systems who didn't require the flu shot um, 
a lot of nurses when it came flu season, they're like, well, we're, we're required to wear masks anyway because of COVID. So like, I'm not getting the flu shot. So a lot of hospital systems actually started mandating the flu shot. And everyone was arguing, they're like, wait, why are you mandating the shot? Like it was optional until now. We had one requirement which worked for years in the hospital system where you asked us to wear masks if we don't get the flu shot. And now suddenly, because so many people are not getting the flu shot, now it's a requirement. So like nothing made sense with their requirements and what was actually happening. What kind of mask was it? <laughs> um, so you had to wear the, the typical surgical mask. It, with, with COVID, like for us, uh, the requirement at the hospital system was you had to wear an N95 with a surgical mask over the N95. Um, so you didn't even have that option of wearing the, the surgical mask alone. Um, so people were like, okay, well, you're making us wear these two masks anyway. Why would I get a flu shot then? <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't breathe as it is. <laughs> um, okay, so, so there have been historically some requirements, and you've been comfortable with most of those, with the you know, tetanus shots and that kind of thing. Um, I, presumably because they've been around for a long time, you're comfortable yes. with their track record for safety. Um, so, but the argument that the, the public health argument that people make, um, especially about healthcare workers, um, is the same as the argument for the tetanus shots, right? Like you have to be, um, we want to minimize the, um, ability for healthcare workers to spread contagious diseases, you know, to contract them or to infect other people. Um, and I, I talked to people you know, when I interview people about this topic, when I just talk to people casually, I talk to quite a few people who will say, well, I'm generally opposed to mandates, uh, you know, for vaccines, you know, any kind of vaccine mandates, but, um, but for healthcare workers, um, healthcare workers should have a, a vaccine mandate because yeah. they're around all the most vulnerable people. Um, we have to, you know, if my, family member goes into the hospital, um, you know, my elderly parent, whoever it is, I want to make sure that that person is not exposed to, that the, that the risk is minimized as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And the COVID vaccines have been presented as something that minimizes risk, right? Yeah. That, that reduces your um, ability to contract and, and transmit the COVID. So yeah. what what do you make of those arguments and how do you address those people's um, concerns? So uh, there's a few different answers to that. Um, first of all, this, I, I don't even like calling it a vaccine because it's not, it's like the complete opposite of the vaccine, but this shot uh, was never meant to prevent you from getting COVID. Uh, what it was meant to do is reduce the risk of getting COVID severely um, enough that you will go into the hospital. So it's it's like the concept that I always um, attribute it back to like life jackets. So if you don't know how to swim and you want to put on a life jacket for safety, how is me putting on a life jacket going to help you? That That's like the real question because me being around your family members when I'm unvaccinated is not risking their health. Like we, first of all, the, the vaccine, the shot came out, I think if I'm not mistaken, in December of 2021, we were allowed to work eight to nine months 
when the vaccine came out, not being vaccinated to begin with. So that's the first thing. So we were allowed to work unvaccinated to begin with. Second thing is during the height of the pandemic, now we know a lot about masks too, but, but during the height of the pandemic, the idea behind everything was we need to wear masks to protect ourselves and our patients from COVID because we're constantly working with COVID people and we need to gown up and take our gowns off in the room to prevent the spread from room to room. So if that's really the argument about patient health and safety, why is it that I was only permitted to get one N95 mask a week when typically you're supposed to change it from room to room, best case and worst case every three hours. So all these, the PPE we found out later on was stockpiled. It's not that they ran out of PPE, they had PPE, but it was stockpiled. So we only had uh, N95 in a brown baggie with our name on it that we had to put in the brown bag after every shift and give it back to our manager. So if it's really about public health and it's really about my health, why, do, why didn't we get the proper equipment to begin with? Um, if it's really about uh, the, the public health, why did you let us work unvaccinated to begin with? If it's really about public health, why was it that when the mandate kicked in in September of 2021, we in the emergency room, because we had the most people that were resistant to getting the shot, we were told that we will continue to work after the mandate takes effect, enough to train new nurses coming in. So you were okay with me working after the mandate kicked in, so you, you have my replacements. So if it was really about their health, why would you continue letting me work? Um, if it's really about the health, how is it safe during a pandemic that supposedly there's this emergency in, in the hospital system and uh, nursing is already a short staff profession to begin with? How is it safe for now the, the shortage in nursing and, and patients coming in and having to wait, to wait longer to be seen or not having enough staff to deal with emergencies or the patient uh, nurse to patient ratio is a lot higher now? How is that safe for your loved ones? When like we're going back to the same thing that this shot was never meant to prevent you from getting COVID. And like you see it now, people have four shots and they're still getting COVID. And the biggest, biggest thing that I want to ask is, is if it's really about public health, why was it that when we were during the pandemic and the nurses still deserve their breaks and still deserve their vacation time, why is it that our managers told us please don't tell us if you're going overseas because then you're going to have to get tested in quarantine before you get back and we want you to come to the hospital. Or why is it that one of my coworkers had COVID, my director and my uh, emergency room manager knew about it and they told her to go get tested. And while she was waiting for the results, she still had to work and she ended up having COVID. So if it's really about public health, why are all these things happening? Why is it that recently, like a few months ago, they were telling the nurses, now only the vaccinated nurses are supposedly in the hospital, but they were telling the nurses that as long, even if you test positive for COVID, as long as you're asymptomatic, you could still come into work. So you know that a nurse has COVID and you're telling them that they could come into work. So how is it really about public health when all of this is happening? Like there's evidence of this. So how is it about public health? How am I, the person who worked during this entire pandemic and didn't get COVID, didn't have the proper equipment and was still taking care of your loved ones and risking my life to take care of your loved ones. How am I not okay to work and I'm a risk to your family member and the, the, the nurses who are working in the hospital system who are still consistently getting COVID, how is it that they're safer to work than I am?
That, that's what I would ask them. I, I would be very interested in hearing that answer. Okay, so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying you don't think it's really about public health. Oh, never. It never was. <laughs> okay. Never was and never is. And there's so much okay. evidence about it. Yeah. So what do you think it's really about? I think it's about pushing an agenda. I think it's about control. Um, These the shots are clearly not effective. Um, These shots are... There is no vaccine in the world that I remember that that literally governors and mayors were bribing their people to get free stuff in order to go get this shot. Um, there was no public health emergency to the point that they decided to segregate people and tell them you're not allowed into restaurants or in Canada, they're not allowed on flights or on buses because they're not vaccinated. So. I mean, even now when you look, I mean, restrictions, as you know, in New York City, now they're not like actually pushing the, the restrictions anymore, but private businesses could still do what and enforce whatever they want. And there are some, some places that are still enforcing it. But even when they still had the green passport in New York City, that's where you, when you were not hearing about COVID cases to begin with, like, and they were still having these restrictions. And I kept laughing and I'm like, you know what? They're, they're not even thinking. So the, the people who are unvaccinated, if they want to eat at restaurants, need to sit outside in those little booths that are closed anyway with people. So that was like funny to begin with. So we're required to sit outside because we're not vaccinated. The vaccinated people could go in to these restaurants. You still are hearing of COVID cases. So like, did they ever think that maybe the vaccinated were infecting each other because they were the only ones allowed into the restaurants? Like that's where common sense kicks in. And you have to constantly ask yourself, does this make sense? Like, does it make sense that they're now in Israel, they're up to the fifth shot? Why? Like COVID is not a thing anymore. You're hearing people get COVID, getting symptoms and leaving. You're not hearing about COVID cases in the hospital anymore. Why is it that there are still these intense restrictions in certain areas that people are still enforcing it, that people like myself can't work still because I'm not vaccinated, where you don't hear about COVID anymore? Like none of this makes sense. And it's all about control. And the minute you give up your control, you're not going to get it back. And that was my 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 thing all the time is if you're complying, if you really believe in getting the shot because you're afraid and you believe that that's the right decision for you, go ahead and get it. I'm not against you getting it. I'm here to spread the information that I know. If you want to listen, great. If you don't want to listen, that's your choice. I, I was never about against people going to get the shot. I'm against it myself. I don't think it's healthy or safe. If you want to go get it, I'm not against it. What I am against is you mandating it and telling me that in order to provide for myself and my family, I have to go get it. That's what I'm against. And that's what I'm fighting. I'm not fighting against people getting the shot, but people just have to ask themselves if they're getting all the information and if anything here makes sense and, and ask themselves, that's what informed consent is about. And when people are not getting all the information, that's where problems arise. How did the process with the mandate enforcement work in your case? So pretty much um, we knew that the mandate will kick in sometime in September because that was the constant talks with the mayor and governor. Uh, so pretty much what happened was it came out, I think, December of 2021. We were working consistently. There were talks about it not being mandated. Anyone who wants it can get it. But like at that time, there was no threat to our job. We knew eventually it would develop because we constantly got emails from the CEO of the hospital about like encouraging us to get it and like 
once uh, information is developing, that's how they're going to make their decision based on the requirements. So we knew that they're hinting that it's going to be mandated eventually. And what eventually happened in August of 2021, um, I mean, a little before that, the bullying started for the people who were the nurses who were unvaccinated. So the very um, discriminating rules came out that um, nurses who were vaccinated would get a badge saying that they were vaccinated versus the nurses who weren't. So what, what happened with that? That's when patients would ask us why we're not getting vaccinated. We're not allowed to obviously give our opinion because we have to remain professional, but it started causing like more problems for the unvaccinated nurses. So that, that was their first tactics. Then the threatening emails started coming about the fact that um, for the safety of the patients and the staff, uh, they're really pushing and urging you to get vaccinated. Um, after that came in August of 2021, that unvaccinated nurses needed to get swabbed once a week in order to continue working, um, which I was against that as well, because I know I knew how ineffective the PCR tests really were and like the chemicals that are placed on, in the PCR tests that are going up your nose, essentially. But I'm like, I'll pick and choose my battles. So I, I went and got it. But what bothered me is that we were trained to swap people in the emergency room and we did it consistently. And they decided that we're not allowed to swab each other. So they brought in staff, flex staff, to swab us every week. And the flex staff were very aggressive with the swabbing to the point that my nose was bleeding one time when I got it done. And I remember uh, telling the nurse like, why, why are you so aggressive? Like, let me guess, they told you to be as aggressive as possible. So to, to force us to get the shot because we who would want to go through nosebleeds every week. And she said, I can't deny that. So that was proof to us that that was another tactic. And then we, it started developing to a point that our managers were telling us that like we pretty much had the unvaccinated nurses and vaccinated nurses. And suddenly the vaccinated nurses, it seemed like they felt very uncomfortable talking to us. Um, so it was like a segregation in the nurses station. Um, and so we formed a group of unvaccinated nurses and we formed a group chat and we would constantly talk to each other. And we saw the treatment. There was like a PA who was very mad and said that she does, is this a patient, this patient has COVID, are they uh, vaccinated? Because if they're not, I don't want to treat them. So you started hearing things like that around the emergency room. Um, and then after that, it, it came to the point that our managers threatened us that we're not allowed to speak about this issue in the nurse's station anymore. They didn't want us like speaking about it at all um, because they knew that we're like swaying each other and, and talking to each other consistently about what was happening and like what we're going to do about it. And then came the mandates. Um, they gave the, the specific deadline. And after they gave that deadline, I think they, they said like, I think early September is when they said that the deadline is going to kick in at the end of the month. And it was just constant daily emails of like, you need to get vaccinated. It's on a record, it shows you're not vaccinated. So if you're not, you're gonna be terminated, like things of that nature. So it was like a lot of harassment until they actually fired us. So it, it sounds like there was a real range of opinion among hospital staff, nurses and other, uh, other people, right? You're saying that there were some, there was a group of you that was really opposed to, um, didn't want to take a vaccine, um, was opposed to all the separating out vaccinated and unvaccinated people, um, opposed to mandates. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you're saying there was a PA who didn't want to treat unvaccinated patients yeah. and people who were very, 
supportive of the vaccines and um, that that sounds like just a very difficult um, divisive <laughs> work environment so I have to say and this is only speaking about the ER because that's my coworkers in the ER is I have to say that there was not one person who was for this vaccine one one coworker who was for this vaccine when we started talking I think what ended up happening, and it seemed like the my coworkers who were against the the shot and ended up getting the shot, uh, was they became more extreme than the people who were like, whatever, like I'm not gonna argue, I'm just gonna get it because I want to keep my job. Um, so I think what was happening was we, the people who were standing up and pretty much holding the line against getting this um, for patient safety and for our own safety we were a constant reminder to them that they could have stood up, stood up as well and they decided not to. And I think that's what um, what started causing the anger in between the two. Because I'm telling you, like I spoke to all my coworkers, there was not one who was for getting it for safety reasons. A lot of people ended up getting it because they didn't want to lose their jobs. But no person that I spoke with, and I spoke to almost all my coworkers, if not all my coworkers, actually said, I'm getting this because I truly believe that this is safe and effective. And I think that we were a constant reminder to like, this is what you could have done. And you, you went against every single like bone in your body and your intuition telling you not to get this. And I think that was like a constant reminder to them that like they went against what they were feeling. So it was, it was very unpleasant work environment. Um, HR, like we, we would constantly ask because initially they were saying that we would be suspended with no pay and not terminated. And we were constantly trying to get in touch with, um, with HR. HR wasn't replying to your emails, wasn't replying to your calls. They were just sending these harassing emails. And it got to the point where like I even picked up a day shift so I could go to the hospital and like physically walk into HR to talk to them. And there was like a very nice lady in HR uh, during that time and she said, listen, like, I'm like, listen, what, what's going on? Like, am I looking for another job? Like, what's going on? Am I getting fired? And she's like, I'm sorry. Like, the minute I know, I'll let you know. Like, we don't know. We don't have this information. This ha information hasn't come out yet. And then, like, they gave us uh, an option of submitting religious and medical exemptions, uh, which we knew they're not going to do anything with. And there was a form that in order to fill out your religious exemption, they wanted you to fill out. And on the form, it pretty much said that you're submitting your religious exemption, but um, if they decide to, to not accept your religious exemption, you're willingly resigning. And I said, I'm absolutely not signing that form because I'm not choosing to resign. Like you guys are threatening my job. Um, so they told me, if you don't fill out this form, then we can't review your religious exemption. So then I emailed them back and I said, well, per my attorney, I'm not required to fill out any form for you to view my religious exemption. So then they responded back and said, well, it's just going to take more time to, to read it if you're not filling out this form. I'm like, fine, take all the time you want. Suspend me if you want and take that time. I literally submitted my religious exemption and two hours later I got that it was denied. So I don't know like what they were talking about that it's gonna take time. I even emailed them and then it was very clear to us that they didn't even read the religious exemption because all of my coworkers who got terminated and submitted the religious exemption got the same um, response back. Um, it even got to the point that there was a federal case. Remember that then like hospitals weren't accepting the religious exemptions, then they were required to evaluate them again. So we, we all resubmitted our religious exemptions with the case quoted that they have to reevaluate. They confirmed that they received it. 
And then two days later, we got the same denial letter. And then it got even to the point that coworkers who didn't submit the religious exemption still got the denial letter. So it was just clear that they were sending the same rhetoric email to everyone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was the religious aspect of it an important aspect of objecting to this vaccine for you? Very. Very. And I, it was a nine page um, religious exemption. I, uh, I stated Supreme Court cases, um, a lot of different things about my belief system, um, but they didn't they didn't read it. And I even had when I um, when I submitted the religious exemption, it, it was either the first or second time. I don't remember exactly which one it was. Um, but when I said uh, what happened, you said it's going to take time to read and you pretty much denied it within two hours. The email response back was we're not required to evaluate them. So it was very clear that they didn't even read it. And it was very clear to us that they won't accept them to begin with. I had a coworker, um, very healthy uh, woman. She was a secretary in the emergency room. She got her first Pfizer shot, uh, ended up uh, she, she stopped breathing. She had to be intubated. Uh, she was in the intensive care unit for about eight days, discharged. Her primary care physician told her she's absolutely not getting the second shot. And they still told her that if she's not getting the sh second shot, she would be fired. After she had legitimate medical reasons not to go get it, she argued. They told her you could get it in the hospital just in case something happens, but they weren't willing to evaluate um, her medical exemption either. So it was very clear to us that it was a waste of time and they won't accept it. Mm-hmm. Do you, is um, your religious objections to this, is is that anything you want to talk about in more detail? What, what you're um, I mean, there's not a lot of detail because it's like very specific cases that I went through, but mm -hmm. um, it's just, you know, everyone has a right to choose. That's like my, my general belief. Whether you want to get it or not, you have a right to choose. Uh, you have a right to choose what goes into your body, especially when it's something that is experimental. Uh, especially when it's something that has shown to cause harm to people. It's not like the, the scary part for me about this shot was that you could take like, I'm 34 years old. You could take a 34 year old healthy female. Okay. My height, my weight, and I could go get the shot and I could be fine. And the same person, like not the same person, but the same demographics, mm -hmm. they go get the shot and they have these terrible adverse effects. So that was the scary part. It's not like a consistent thing. It's like pretty much like Russian roulette. You go and you don't know if you're going to be okay after or not. And guess what? If you're not okay after, good luck with trying. You, they, these pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies have no liability. You can't sue them. So it's pretty much like when, when you have a law like that where you can't sue a company who is manufacturing these vaccines, what, what incentive do they have of actually making it safe? Like there's no incentive because they know that they're not going to be held liable. But like, that's like the politics behind it. Like for me personally, it's like, you just look at the facts. If it's something that has shown to cause harm to even a hundred people, why am I forced to, to go and get this? Like, why can't I make my own decision? If I'm looking at the statistics, statistics speaking of COVID and I look at people my age range, I'm a healthy 34 year old female I literally never, never, never get sick. Like un until getting COVID, knock on wood, I haven't been sick since I was 10 years old. I, I barely even get colds during the winter. So I have a very strong immune system. I didn't get COVID when and, I was and you working work in a hospital. hospital. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I didn't get COVID when I worked in the hospital. Of course, I get it when I'm out of the hospital system. But like, so I'm a healthy, I'm like a typical healthy 34 year old female. So my age range 
did fine with COVID for the most part, statistically speaking, okay, based on the science. So why would I, I have to look, when I look at things, I look at the, the risks versus re rewards. There's a lot more risk for me to go get this shot than, than there is reward. Like if, if I get COVID, most likely I'll be just fine. If I get the shot, I don't know if I'll be okay. So why is my livelihood being threatened to go get something that could in an instant change my life and then I won't be able to work to, to begin with? And like, this is the thing, like after being terminated, I've been very active. I've been attending so many different protests. I attended the protest in Washington, DC, the Defeat the Mandates protest. And they brought a lot of um, vaccine injury victims to that protest to speak. And, and you're talking about surgeons who have to use their hands, like that's their livelihood, that's their work, who are now paralyzed on one side and can never work again. You're talking about parents who are talking about their young, healthy kid who got the shot and is no longer with them. So like where there is risk, there must be consent. And that's not how they're viewing this. And that's why it, it went from, like I told you, from like initially hearing about the shot coming out and being like, you know, maybe in a few years after I see more data, I may get it to like being completely against it and knowing that that will never go into my body just because of the push for it, just because the statistics and science. And when you look at things, how unnecessary it really is to push it on certain demographics and just just like the, the propaganda and fear behind it and what I saw in the hospital versus what was actually happening. So that's when I made my decision. And that's where I, I can't give my my personal opinion to patients. And I never did. I remained very professional and always told them that when they asked me what my opinion was about it, I said, listen, you need to speak to your primary care physician. You need to do your research. And if you feel like that's something that's right for you, then by all means, that's your decision. That was always my answer. I never gave my personal opinion, but to my family, oh, you bet I did. <laughs> uh, so I, I want to ask about your um, coworkers and just the kind of uh, situation for nurses in the hospital. You're saying that initially everyone you worked with, all of your colleagues felt more or less the way you did. Yeah, they were seeing things um, happening that they uh, saw as related to the vaccine that they did, didn't like. Um, they felt there were safety issues. Perhaps some of them also had religious objections. Um, <clears throat> so what happened there? <laughs> like what nurses, anyone who has worked in a hospital or been with someone who is seriously ill in a hospital knows that nurses are where it's at <laughs> in a hospital, right? Like yeah. doctors come in and see the patient for 15 minutes, examine, do, do really critical things and um, write prescriptions and arrange surgeries and do all that stuff. But they're not there all the time. They're there yeah. for brief periods of time. It's the nurses who are really uh, always there. The person you ask for anything you need, the person who's answering all your questions, yeah. monitoring you, making, you know, really kind of running the show. So if that's the case, um, I, why did that happen? If, if so many nurses were objecting to this and nurses have really a powerful position in hospitals, you know, due to their, um, you know, the critical nature of your job. Yeah how how did this happen why wasn't that um wh why wasn't the position of nurses something that they used to um 
influence the situation or to um, support their own position? Well, that's and that's that's the sad part out, out of this entire story is that nurses who have been so dedicated to the profession and dedicated to the patients and who knew that this is not safe and this is not effective ended up having to get it um, because they didn't want to lose their job. I mean, I had so many amazing coworkers. Uh, I had a, a coworker. She was in uh, nurse practitioner school. She had a year left. They told her if she doesn't get it, she can't continue with school and can't go to clinicals at the hospital. So she ended up getting it. I had a nurse who was a single mom to, to three kids, uh, one of them autistic and constantly needing care, uh, that she said, I mean, I have to get it because I can't lose my job and I can't lose my health insurance. And that was, was the stories that you constantly heard. And that was like the, the biggest point and the biggest takeaway. If people are going to get the shots specifically because they don't want to lose their job and not because of the belief that it's safe and effective. So what exactly are we doing here? And that's the thing. Coercion is not consent and forcing people and holding the jobs over their head and saying, if you're not going to get this, you're not going to allow to travel. You're not going to be allowed to work. You're not going to be allowed to eat in restaurants. That's not the way putting fear in people to lose their livelihood is not the way to convince people that this shot is safe and effective. And that's what the city continues to do. That's what the governor continues to do. And th that's a sad situation. And what's even sadder is that people like myself who took an oath to do no harm and truly believes that this shot is doing a lot of harm and that informed consent, which is the basis of everything is not being produced. Um, so we're willing to lose our jobs, to take a stance and to show uh, that that something here is wrong, that we're willing, like there were, I think 40,000 or a little over 40,000 nurses in New York City who are willing to lose their jobs to take that stance and to lose everything we worked for. And instead of having the public ask themselves, hmm, why are so many healthcare workers willing to lose their jobs over this? Instead, we were vilified. We were called domestic terrorists. Uh, we were called spreading misinformation. So all that clapping at the change of shift at 7 p.m. with the pots and pans that we were heroes and we were risking our lives in an instant turned into complete zeros. And having the public trust nurses so much that they, they think that, you know, this is such a blessed profession and they know that nurses spend a lot of time with patients and really advocate for their patients. That's our main job. And to go from like the public seeing us as those type of people to seeing us as anti-vaxxers who were selfish. And when I'm literally losing my job to try to warn you, that's that's like what really hurt me. Mm -hmm. Why, though, do you think that nurses don't see their own, you know, to put it in, in labor terms, collective bargaining power, right, as a group? Because you're saying that the, the medical system would address each person individually and say, here's what you stand to lose if you don't do what we're telling you to do. Yeah. But why don't, didn't that group of people get together? I, nurses are not unionized, right? Um, some, some are in different hospitals. We weren't. You weren't. Okay. Yeah. You know, historically, this is what unions do, right? It's a bunch of people who individually would be at risk for punishment yeah. but understand that they have a collective 
power when they get together and say, okay, we're not going to, none of us are going to do our jobs anymore if you don't negotiate with us. Um, Why do you think nurses didn't do that? Because you can't run a hospital without the nurses. Well, and that was my argument. And like some of the, my coworkers who got fired, that was our argument to begin with. And that's why we were told we're not allowed to discuss it in the nurses station anymore because initially when like the, the, the direction was heading towards a mandate, we, we all got together and we're like, listen, guys, we have enough of us that like, literally if, if we don't get this, they're losing half of the ER staff. So if all of us just say no, they're not going to do this, but that was the problem to begin with. And that's why we always argued that non-compliance is the only way out of this. If you continue to comply with getting a shot every time it comes out, you continue to support businesses who are enforcing these ridiculous green passports. Uh, if you continue to comply with mask wearing when it was shown to be ineffective, all these different things, you're just literally giving your freedoms away. And if enough people just said no to begin with from every profession, we wouldn't be in this situation. But I think that's where the fear came in that when people saw what they have to lose, when people have other obligations with kids and health insurance and things like that. And I'm telling you right now, unions didn't do anything. I mean, I, some of my, the hospital system that I worked at was unionized in, in different uh, systems. They didn't do anything to support their members. NYPD, FDNY unions did not do anything. Teachers unions didn't do anything because now I'm in touch with all these different groups of people. So the unions are, are one of the most corrupt organizations out there. I mean, even, and, and the corruption is very, very deep. That's what people, it's either they don't want to see it or they just don't see it because it's scary when when you see how deep this corruption goes it's it's a scary thing but once you're in it and you your eyes are open you can't go back and you can't close your eyes and i mean there's even a case now with the, the teachers the new york city teachers where uh they had a lawsuit about uh, being terminated and back pay and all of that and the judge that was ruling that ruled against their case and decided like that it was lawful for them to be terminated apparently owned a huge stock in Pfizer. So that that um, judge recently got off the case. Like they were there were calls to get them off the case. They got off the case. They replaced it with another ja- judge who I think within a day or two had to get off the case because they had stocks in Pfizer too. Yes. So it's like how deep is the corruption that. Here now, the last week, there was a gala for the NYPD. The honorary guest was the Pfizer CEO. How does the Pfizer CEO have anything to do with the gala in the NYPD if they weren't giving money to the NYPD? So here you are going and celebrating pretty much the termination of your members, holding this gala. And instead of honoring the heroes who sacrificed so much to work in these fields, you're honoring a pharmaceutical company. So if people are not connecting the dots at this point, I don't know how to help, but it's all about following the money. And when you follow the money and you see how deep rooted this corruption is, it's, it's insane. So where does this leave you now? (laughs) What have you been doing? (laughs) What have you been doing since uh, you left that hospital system? Uh, so I worked like in different, um, there are nursing jobs out there. I always told my coworkers that there's no such thing as you won't be able to get a job. 
It may not be the job that you dreamt of, but it's still a job that supports you. So I worked for like a vitamin infusion company, like as a, a home nurse going in uh, in uh, starting IVs and infusions. Uh, I worked at the side of cleaning apartments. I love cleaning. It's very therapeutic. So that was fine for me. Uh, there's a lot of, of like, I know a lot of uh, coworkers who work in like almost like urgent care system, systems. So we're fine. You know, I love my hospital job. I loved interacting with patients. I love the emergency aspect of it, of it but I'm not um, going to work in any system that um, is able to throw you out like that, like your trash after everything you gave to that system. So I'm completely fine with not being in the hospital. Um, I use my spare time to go to protests. There's like protests almost every day in New York City. Uh, so I definitely continue to make my voice heard and uh, spread information and hopefully get to as many people as possible. Had you ever been a protester before this? Never. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's my full-time job. I work on the side of nursing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, how has this changed your whole perspective on politics and protesting? And um, now, now you're heavily involved in this kind of a political, um, you know, world. What do you think about all that stuff? <laughs> so I never liked politicians. I... You know, the whole Republican Democrat thing is a bunch of BS. The The truth behind is, is politicians are liars. Politicians get paid and they go after whoever's paying the most and the rules. Politicians aren't making the decisions on their own. There's a higher up, like in hospital administrations, who's making all the decisions. And politicians are just the puppets of those people. So it's not a right versus left thing, Republican versus Democrat thing. It has never been about that. And I think that, you know, I, I fought for freedom in the military. Uh, it's something that I always believed in. It's something that I sacrificed a lot to. And it's something I lost friends to. And the, the war that we're fighting right now, this psychological and spiritual war is a lot worse than the war that I, I was fighting in the military. Uh, so although I've never been in that um, kind of you know, going activist role. Um, I think that the most important thing to do right now is I always get messages on Instagram asking, how can we help? And I think it's about continuously making your voices heard. And that's what I'm doing and a group of us is doing. Even if it's five people showing up to like these events, like the, the NYPD gala, to re remind the city and remind the mayor and rem remind the governor that at the end of the day, they're the ones who are working for us, the people. They don't have control over our kids and they don't have control over our bodies. We do. We're the decision makers when it comes to that. And if people don't have their voices heard, these politicians think that, okay, their goal was to tire us out and they won. And like they continue to put out these tyrannical rules and we're just going to abide by them. So it's all about getting your voices out there, being an advocate, being an activist, obviously doing it peacefully. I, and I never say go and do it violently, but you have your right to protest and right to express yourself and you should use it because we gave up so many freedoms. And we, I mean, this is almost three years now. Like whoever thought, what happened to two weeks to stop the spread? Like who, whoever thought that three years later and we will be in the situation and like, who knows where it would develop to and if we're going to have more lockdowns in the future and more variants or monkeypox or whatever it is that they want to throw at us now. Um, I don't think the I, I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet. I think that once you give up your freedom 
Um, it's, it's a very, very slippery slope that we're dealing with. So the best thing to do right now is to stop complying and uh, to be active and to let your voices be heard. Okay, so you're saying that, um, you know, all, all the politicians are corrupt and Republican, Democrat, it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. You just have to, you know, make your desires clear. You have to make your position clear, um, let your voice be heard. But the politicians who have supported these policies, they seem pretty adamant about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I know, Kathy Hochul has... Um, you know, put mandates and other measures in place and seems very serious about continuing to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we have our city in New York City government, the, the mayor and the health commissioner, um, the health commissioner especially has said, yes, that our mandates are in place. Our employment mandates are in place indefinitely. Um, these politicians don't seem like they will be open to being swayed by protesters or yeah. people making their views clear. Um, it, it really does seem like you got to change the politicians if you want to change the policy, right? Yeah. So where does that leave wh what you're saying? Um, you're saying, you know, uh, politicians are all the same and yet there are, they are different, right? There are, yeah. You see at the at these protests that you're talking about, you see um, some politicians do show up um, in support of the protests. Yeah. Um, and and so there are some clear differences, right? There are differences. And again, I like I don't know every politician and I didn't speak to every politician, so I can't say that all politicians are corrupt. I think that the general consensus is politicians. That's what politics is about. It's a game. It's nothing more than that. Um, I think that we have had a major impact as activists. Um, the with the green passports are no longer existent in New York City, and I think that that has a lot to do with making the mayor's life a living hell because we constantly protest in front of his house. Um, we constantly go to every event that he's supposed to be at and protest. So we're not backing down, and we're making his life a living hell. I now um, he decided to unmask the toddlers, which is something that uh, we've been fighting for. And I think that a major reason he's he's doing that is because he has, a, if I'm not mistaken, the last time I checked, it's a 29% approval rating. So clearly people are not happy with him. Um, at the end of the day, elections are coming up and their number one goal is to be elected. So at a certain point, they have to kind of give in a little bit and do what the people want or they're not going to be elected because at the end of the day, like I said, they work for us. We don't work for them. Um, I think the, the true solution is yes, is to change the politicians and to have term limits because when the politicians are corrupt and there's no term limits and they're constantly getting money, of course, they're not going to want to leave their position. Uh, but these politicians who usually are there for a long time, they completely forgot who they work for and what the people want. Um, they're not here to listen to the people. So I have, I mean, now uh, you could probably see because it's a huge thing in New York now is you have ordinary people like healthcare workers who are fired or teachers who are fired who are running for Congress. And I think that's the solution to have ordinary people who are pushing for term limits and who have experienced the effects of these mandates going to run. Um, you have like my friend, John Madland, um, who's running for uh, Staten Island District 11. Um, he's running against someone, Nicole Maliotakis, which is someone that he voted for that's supposed to be a Republican, but she constantly votes with Democrats. Why? Because of money and because she wants to stay in office. So John Madeline, he was a healthcare worker. He worked in, uh, 
as a CT scanner for most of his life, like half of his life in the hospital system. And he was terminated and he never wanted to go and run for politics. He has been to almost every single protest in New York City since August of 2021. Okay, so this is someone who experienced the mandates firsthand, who was fired because of the mandates and who has been on the streets for the right reason and even got arrested at protests. So that's the people that we need. It's not like because he got arrested, he should he should be the next Congress. That's not what I'm saying. But it's like people who are connected to reality. And these politicians who have been in office for a long time are not connected to reality anymore. And and it just shows like Mayor Adams, for example. So he doesn't want when when he decided that there's a mandate for New York City workers, you had athletes like Kyrie Irving, who wasn't allowed to play at home, but he had you had other players, other athletes coming in from away games to the, to our, to New York city. And they were allowed to play if they were not vaccinated. How does that make any sense? Or how does it make sense now that um, he, he lifted the mandates for performers and athletes in New York city, but like the real heroes who worked throughout the entire pandemic and who actually have an impact on public health and about saving lives, they're not allowed to return to their jobs. And there's like a huge crisis going on um, and FDNYs that are sh stations shutting down and hospital systems that are shutting down because they don't have enough staff. So why are athletes and performers who have no direct impact on patient lives are allowed to work, but we're not allowed to work and they're not vaccinated. So it's a double standard. And, and legitimately the mayor, Mayor Adams is a bully. You, I mean, if you look and I don't mind, I, he knows that we think this way about him. You see him um, at protests, like when we protest in front of his house or when we go to events, all he does is smile and does thumbs up when people are yelling at him. So he's a bully. And it's very unfortunate because he could have done so much with the city, but you see the crime rate going up to, to things that like we, we haven't seen in such a long time. And he's just busy taking photos in front of places and acting like a celebrity. So these are not people we want in office. So you have to speak out and you have to make sure that these people are not elected. It's, it's all about the people. You mentioned um, you mentioned hospitals being short staffed. Um, I'm not sure if I know the, the number of um, nurses who have been let go in New York state. I don't know if you know the, the number currently of, of nurses that have lost their jobs because they didn't comply with the mandate. Honestly, I, I don't know the exact number because what happened was uh, initially when the mandate first kicked in, they they publicized the number. They're like 30,000, 40,000. I forgot exactly mm, what number yeah. they were saying. But what happened was that a lot of different hospital systems were accepting religious exemptions or put it on hold and weren't terminating employees. So you had a lot of hospitals in upstate New York, for example, that only started terminating nurses months after the mandate. So... There's not an accurate number. Even now, when you look at NYPD, for example, there was the initial date of NYPD that were being terminated and then mm -hmm. religious exemptions were accepted. And now it's on hold and it's suspended because they know that they can't fire more people. But there are so many people uh, in the NYPD who are not vaccinated and who submitted a religious exemption and not even taking into account the amount of people who have fake vaccine cards and didn't actually get the shot. 
So the number is a lot higher than they say, but they're obviously not looking at all those factors because they want to be like, oh, we're okay. We only had to terminate a few people. Like if, if that's really the case, why do they have to close down fire stations? And why do they have to close down like, um, you know, elective surgeries or urgent care facilities? Because if they had enough staff, why, why would they have to close all these things down? I, I wonder what you, okay, because the, the, Hospital staffing and hospital capacity has been one of the topics that's been a huge discussion throughout, a huge topic throughout the pandemic and, you know, the vaccine campaign. Um, There's always been this concern about having the hospitals um, being overrun or short-staffed and not being able to provide care. Um, And that's, that's been one of the rationales of the vaccine mandates too, right? Like if we have even after it became clear that a lot of people who were vaccinated were transmitting COVID and becoming ill, um, one of the remaining arguments um, for the mandate has been, well, the the vaccine prevents you from being uh, severely ill, from going into the hospital, and we have to preserve our hospital capacity. So I wonder, as somebody who you know was working in a hospital before COVID and you know throughout. Um, much of the pandemic. What do you think about hospital capacity? Was there a pre-existing issue with hospital staffing and capacity? Oh, yeah. Do you see that change? Like what do, do you do you think that there are other factors at play there? Do you think that hospitals being overrun is a real risk? You know, what, what's yeah. the situation in your view? I mean, uh, listen, uh, nursing, I mean, I could speak specifically about nursing. Uh, nursing was always uh, a profession that had a shortage. Um, it's mostly because of the treatment of the hospital sh- uh, system towards nurses. It's mostly because of the pay and it's mostly a safety issue. I mean, we work so hard for our nursing license. Uh, we don't, you don't want to have a nurse to patient ratio of one nurse per 12 to 18 patients. That's not a safe thing. And that's something that has been happening even before the pandemic, not specifically in my hospital, Um, But in other hospital systems, uh, that's very, very typical for an ER nurse to have 12, 13 patients. And uh, that's a risk to our license. At the end of the day, first of all, you're you're working like a dog. And uh, I mean, you don't expect to have an easy time when you go to work in the hospital. But when it comes to patient health and safety, if you're working in an emergency room, for example, and you emergency room is typically critical patients are coming in, people who are really not feeling well. So if you're having a patient uh, that's potentially having a stroke, a heart attack, an anaphylactic reaction, and like then you have like three patients who are waiting to go up to the ICU because they're that critical. So now we're talking about maybe five very critical patients out of the 10 that you have. And in nursing, you have to prioritize care. So the most emergent is the, the one you go to first, but all of them are emergencies. That's not something that's safe uh, for you or for the patient. And that's typically what has been happening way before the pandemic. Uh, And that's why you see a huge burnout in nursing. That's why you see a huge turnover in nursing. Uh, I mean, you look at like the typical orders in an emergency room, a patient comes in and I'm not talking for like just something like a patient, uh, a psych emergency or the patient is having a headache or something like that. Like the typical chest pain or stomach ache or whatever it may be. Usually it's it's the typical set of orders of the patient comes in, uh, you'll put them on a heart monitor, 
then you'll start an IV. You have to take a bunch of labs from them. Uh, you have to send that, that to the lab. Then you, there's a, a set of orders of medications that you have to administer at a certain time. So imagine doing that. And then of course, there's the assessment before you even do the treatment. So typically speaking from a safety perspective of like really assessing your patient, you're gonna be in the room of the patient for at least five minutes doing a thorough assessment, an initial assessment, and then another five minutes to start the IV and take labs, and then uh, another uh, 10 minutes to, to get the medications and, and administer medications. So we're talking about maybe 20 to 25 minutes per patient. How are you gonna do that when there is an emergency and you have 10 patients? Like you're gonna have patients and there were cases where when a patient comes in, like the, the, the safe thing and the important thing to do is to lay your eyes on them to see that they're walking, talking, and breathing at least. You don't initially have to go and immediately do your assessment, but you when an EMS brings in a patient or like the charge nurse says, hey, we put a patient in this room for you, you don't want to wait an hour to go see the patient because, I mean, if the patient was critical and you didn't even see them, things could change very quickly and you could walk into, God forbid, a dead body. So you don't want that to happen. But when you have so many patients per one nurse, sometimes that happens and you don't even go get to see your patient for an hour when you didn't even know. Sometimes, I mean, the hospital is so worked up that you don't even know that you had a patient. Like they'll let you know in the walkie, Karen, we put a, a, a patient in this room for you, but you were so busy like assessing or listening to your other patient that you didn't even know until you popped on the computer and saw that you were assigned a few more patients. So that's always been an issue before the pandemic. And then take that issue of like staffing issues and pay issues and being consistently overworked and stepped on and add a pandemic to that. Like it's just a recipe for disaster. And that's why, I mean, PTSD is a real thing. A lot of healthcare workers suffer from PTSD after what they witnessed during the pandemic. So, so many people are burnt out. So the hospital people left after working through the pandemic it's just a very, very unsafe situation. You're kind of attributing um, short staffing to um, <clears throat> people leaving the profession. Yeah, that's the main reason, I think. What about um, people coming in? Are there enough? Are there lots of people coming in enough to have a good level of staffing everywhere and then they just leave too quickly? Is that what's No. Um, so typically, I mean, I don't know like the exact numbers, of course, but Typically, just from a training perspective, when you sign up for the hospital, it's about, if I'm not mistaken, this is what I heard, uh, fifty dollars to $60,000 to train a new nurse once they come up to the unit. So they're going to do everything in their power to keep you because they don't want to spend so much money training you and then having you leave. Um, for the emergency room, the general requirement in New York State is that you have to have at least two years of experience at a different unit before even going down to the emergency room. So a new grad, I mean, some hospital systems kind of go around it by saying that they're gonna have an uh, eight to nine month intense orientation where pretty much the, the new orientee is going to follow a nurse and not really be a nurse. And then uh, they have another year where they're hopping from unit to unit before they go down to the emergency room. So that's how some hospital systems get by of having a nurse with no real experience in the emergency room. But generally speaking, the, that's the requirement in New York State. So think about like all the people who are leaving, especially there's a huge turnover rate in the emergency room because they're, they're the ones where um, the staffing ratio is the most unstable. 
Uh, they're the ones who patients are consistently coming in. It's not like they could close their doors and say, sorry, there's a cap here. Other units upstairs, there's a cap. There's 26 rooms. There's only a certain amount of people you could fit in. In ERs, you'll typically see patients in the hallway too. So you, you look at ER staff specifically. Now, if there's a requirement for staff to at least a new grad can't even come straight to the emergency room. So think about it. There's just a training. Then like, for example, myself, before I came into the emergency room, I was a staff nurse for, for two years in a step-down unit. Uh, I came to the emergency room and I had a four-month orientation before I was even allowed to start taking patients myself. So look at all that factors and the turnover rate versus the, um, the rate that they're actually accepting people is very, very slow. And that's like the danger when it, when it comes to that. And then like you, you look at uh, people now who were fired, like, and th these are, I'm talking about nurses, some of them who have been working for 15, 20 years in the profession or in the emergency room alone. So you're taking all these very experienced nurses and you're terminating them. Now you're having like, in my case, in my emergency room, I know that um, we had such a huge turnover uh, because of this pandemic that I mean, even when I came in, the people who were training me were only like ER nurses for a year, a year and a half in the ER. When like years ago, you would see people with 15 to 20 years of experience training new nurses. Now you're seeing, because I still talk to some of my coworkers, um, like a nurse, uh, assistant nurse manager in the ER during night shift only has a year of experience. So you're having baby nurses training baby nurses. It's, it's a scary situation. And that's where I was talking when you asked about, you know, patients saying, uh, or like family members saying, we don't want unvaccinated nurses treating our patients. So look at the pros and cons and risks versus benefits. So do you prefer there being no staff in the hospital and having a potential emergency that could have been prevented if there was enough staff and having that be the case instead of having us work? Mm -hmm. One other thing I want to ask you about, you have um, several times in our conversation referred to the New York City uh, vaccine pass as the green pass. Yeah. And th it's actually not called the green pass. There, It's been called key to NYC. There's the yeah. your pass. There are different different ones. But the green pass is the Israeli uh, pass, right? Yeah, yeah. If, so do you have some um, insight yourself into the situation in Israel? This, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, this is uh, something that people have really been looking at the example of Israel because they were, um, Israel was, uh, has the Pfizer vaccine from the beginning. From right? the beginning it was Pfizer. Now they're kind of mixing between Pfizer and Moderna. Now they've introduced others. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but I think initially they were, they were exclusively Pfizer and so yes. it was considered a really, a really good data set basically to see what would happen with that rollout, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, specific population, a specific, uh, you know, Pfizer vaccine, uh, what's going to happen. So, um, so people have really looked at that, but what, what is your um, insight into that situation? So, yeah. So like, like you said, I always say green pass because I'm very uh, well, well informed in what's going on with Israel, but it was called the keys to New York here. Um, and Israel was the green pass. So I, all my family lives in Israel um, all of them are vaccinated. So I have like all the information of what's going on from being there in Israel myself physically, um, during the pandemic and also, um, my family and like 
obviously different sources in Israel, but um, that was like the major thing that I constantly used uh, to point out different arguments during the pandemic itself, because Israel, if I'm not mistaken, was about three to four months ahead of us. So everything that happened in Israel, we would get like three to four months later. Um, Israel signed a deal exclusively with Pfizer, um, which, I mean, there's like a lot of controversy behind that as well. And like the terms of that deal that are not being uh, fully uncovered. But uh, what, what we typically saw in Israel that started happening was, I mean, their lockdowns were intense. Like they, they had actual lockdowns where they weren't allowed to step more than 500 meters from their house. It wasn't like our lockdowns that things were closed, but you were still allowed to like travel and work and stuff like that. And um, what happened after that was that people were so afraid. Like people, that's the difference I see between people in Israel and people here. People in Israel actually got the shot because they were terrified for the most part. And people here actually got it just because of restrictions. And after that, what hospital systems were starting to see was that the people who were vaccinated were actually, uh, there was a higher number of intubated people that were vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And the data constantly changed. But that was the typical thing that you were seeing being reported at the time that I was there. And I'm like, okay, so this is very interesting to me. So it's clearly showing that people like there was a huge concern even here in the US in the hospital system when the, the shot first came out that it's going to suppress the immune system. And it's pretty much like there's going to be a rollout of this shot every few months that you have to get the boosters in order to keep your immune system strong. Like that was the typical concern without even seeing data yet um, that would cause autoimmune issues. And I think that the data in Israel kind of confirmed that. Um, it, it's, it, they didn't blatantly state that, but you were saying that people who were getting the third and fourth shot uh, more ill than the people who were not vaccinated to begin with. Uh, you were saying more intubated patients who were vaccinated than unvaccinated patients who had COVID. So that was pretty early on that you saw that. So I was very, very surprised that they kept pushing more vaccines after that. Um, now they're up to the fifth. They're not, after the third, they haven't pushed it as much. And what was also very interesting that's different between Israel and here is that no one was terminated for not getting the vaccine in Israel. In Israel, you just had to um, take a test. I think it was every three days, a PCR test in order to come to work. So that was also like a major difference. And they made it very uncomfortable for people who are not vaccinated to continue because who wants a Q-tip shoved up their nose every three days? Um, they also had to pay for it privately. So it wasn't like the company or the workplace was paying for it. So obviously like a lot of people financially can't afford to do that and had to go get the shot, but no one was ever terminated or there was no mandate for it. There were the green passes that we talked about. Um, but if you wanted to go into a movie theater and you were not vaccinated, you had the option to test and show your results in order to go into a movie theater. So it was very interesting twist on how they're pushing more shots like here, Healthcare workers didn't even have to get the boosters. So in Israel, they're pushing more shots, but here the mandates are stricter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so your family, your family there got the vaccine because they, they were worried about COVID. Yeah. 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 yeah it's not because they didn't believe in the shot. They actually believed in the shot. They, mm -hmm. they were terrified after the stories. They were terrified after the news. 
Um, they, my, my grandma thankfully is still alive. She's 86 years old. So they were very nervous about being around her. Um, so, you know, the typical, I, I hate using this, this term, um, but it's the truth. It's brainwashing. And unfortunately they were brainwashed from an early stage, um, because they actually had lockdowns and they actually saw that, Hey, if, if I don't get the shot here, I can't live here. I mean, to be fair, uh, for example, if your, your grandmother is 86, that COVID is a risk, uh, a greater risk. Yeah. So like with, with her, I mean, I was against her getting it, um, getting the shot. I'm a guess uh, she got the fourth one. She's the only one from my family that I know of that got the fourth one um, because the other all got COVID at the same time. So they didn't have to get the, the shot. Um, in Israel, there was still that thing, um, which was very important where if you had COVID and were recovering from COVID, uh, you weren't supposed to get the shot for at least 90 days. So that's something that they really um, stuck to. While here, it was the same rule in the beginning, but then it's not like they were testing people to see if they had COVID. And I think a lot of people who were de developing adverse reactions were people who had COVID um, and with, they had a very uh, high antibody level and they still went and got the shot not knowing that they even had COVID. So I think that's where we saw a lot of the adverse effects. Um, my grandma is, of course, she's 86, she's elderly. Thankfully, she's healthy overall. The only thing she really has is high blood pressure. Uh, so I didn't think that it uh, warranted going and getting the shot and risking it. Um, she's probably gonna get the fifth from what, what I know. And I hope she doesn't, but I mean, it wasn't that I was necessarily against her getting it specifically because of the age group. Um, but that, that thought process of let me go get the shot because I'm around my grandma again, you're not protecting her by going to get the shot. So it's like, why are you putting your body through it um, if it's not going to prevent uh, a potential transmission of COVID to her? Right. So uh, what does the future hold for you? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. Um, I don't know what things will develop. I mean, I learned to live day by day, to take things minute by minute because things change here all the time. I don't think any of us expected uh, that 2020 would happen. Uh, so it just shows that you can't plan ahead. So I'm just, I'm really enjoying life. I mean, I'm working, I'm traveling, I'm meeting amazing freedom fighters, amazing people. Um, I work with nurse Erin now. I don't know if you heard about her. Um, but I work with her now, um, and there's another amazing nurse who was a whistleblower. Blower. Her name is Jody O'Malley. Uh, she actually like recorded hidden footage as well of what's going on in the hospital system. So they're doing amazing things, and I'm helping them out. Um, nurse Erin opened up a, a telemedicine clinic in Florida uh, that's accepting patients. So I think she's pioneering and paving the new way of healthcare where you actually respect uh, people's decision. Um, and you treat them based on uh, evidence-based treatments. So uh, her clinic is doing amazing things. It's called America's Clinic, and she's looking to open more. And hopefully um, she'll open a hospital system and um, we'll, we'll have uh, non-corrupt organizations being formed. Well, before we wrap it up, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you would like to say to people that... Uh that you'd like to cover before we? No, I mean, I think you covered everything. I just, uh, what I urge people is to do the research, uh, to look within themselves because 
the reality is we're not supposed to hate each other. We're not supposed to fight against each other. I mean, we're supposed to really respect everyone's decision. I respect your decision if you want to get vaccinated. All, all I see my mission and my job is to let you know of the risks because informed consent is getting all the information. And I think it's important for you to know all the information before you make such a critical decision. So that's all I've ever been doing. Um, I, I'm not against or I don't hate you if you go get the shot. I wish that uh, less people would have complied because I don't think we would be in this situation. But I absolutely do not hate you. And I absolutely respect your decision either way. Um, and all I'm asking is that you respect our decision, that you look at, especially like healthcare workers, NYPD, FDNY, EMS, look at all these different fields that are fields of people who are really, really willing to sacrifice everything um, for patients and always have been, that's the profession. And like, ask yourself if it's okay to vilify them and to treat them like this. Um, ask yourself if it's important to stand with people like that who really do have patient care and patient health in mind. So that, that's all I'm asking is like, you do your own research, never ever trust one or two people, never ever trust someone because they have an MD or RN behind their name. Um, you always have to do your own research and just know that um, a lot of people who are standing up are standing up because we really do care about your health. Uh, we took an oath to do no harm and this is me doing no harm and taking a stance for that. And I only wish you health and happiness. And I, I really hope that we'll see uh, good times. We won't have to experience things like that again, but I hope that if we do, God forbid, experience another event like this or something else that's an emergency, um, that we stand together and we stand united and we don't act and behave like we did to each other beforehand. All right. Well, thank you very much for for talking with me so extensively about so many different topics. It's It's really been interesting. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.